That car to me is still perfect. The last pass, I decided I was going to retire the car. I ran 760 at 185 and it still drives so nice at that level. That to me is probably the absolute limit of being a perfect street car. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we've got John Shepard from Shep Trans joining us all the way from the US. Uh, John is one of the OGs from the import drag racing scene, and he's actually one of the reasons that I originally got involved in drag racing. I followed his uh, exploits in his Talon Eclipse, and at the time, I think he ran a fastest ET of around 770, and I think he, he went about as quick as 194 mile an hour, maybe 195 mile an hour uh, on the quarter. And now obviously these days there's, there's far faster cars. Uh, we talk in this interview, uh, we refer to boost in performance and uh, I think they're currently sitting around a 7.0, maybe 7.04, 204 mile an hour. So yes, times have moved on. We need to understand that uh, John was racing his uh, Talon uh, many, many years ago and we didn't have access to the technology in terms of engine parts, billet blocks, turbo technology or uh, engine management solutions that we have today. So the fact that he was doing that back in the day on a manually shifted H pattern transmission is pretty impressive. Uh, John is probably best known for his, his exploits through Shep Trans though, which is uh, what is now uh, a very well recognised brand in terms of upgraded transmissions for a range of vehicles. Uh, he got his uh, start there in the DSM Mitsubishi uh, mark, however uh, these days he's doing transmissions for just about anything fast on the quarter uh, or on the racetrack and particularly with the advent of modern dual clutch transmissions uh, his work has stepped up a notch. Shall we dive into the inner workings of these DCT transmissions and what's required in terms of the hardware to make these work as well as the software side of things which is really easy to overlook. These modern DCT transmissions rely heavily on the tuning of the TCM or transmission control module so these kind of go hand in hand. So huge amount to take away from this and I'm pretty confident in saying that uh, John not only uh, inspired me to get into drag racing but he's probably inspired hordes of others uh, through the years. Hasn't given up on drag racing while the Talon may be retired uh, he's got a couple of really fast R35 GTRs his uh, street car believe it or not running uh, pretty deep into the sevens and his full on race version uh, running pretty well into the, the sixes so he is no stranger to speed. Before we get into our interview, just a quick introduction for those who maybe haven't heard of High Performance Academy before. We are an online training school. We specialise in teaching people a range of skills including EFI tuning, engine building, wiring. We also teach about race driver education and car setup. If you want to find out a little bit more about any of our courses, you can head to hpacademy.com forward slash courses. That's going to give you a full list of everything we offer. Relevant today because we're obviously talking drag racing and a lot of the drag racing elements really come down to tuning which is why I really love drag racing predominantly as an engine builder and a tuner. I find drag racing is the ultimate way of expressing 
just how well you've done with both of those elements. And we've probably all seen dino figures that seem a little bit hard to believe, maybe slightly inflated out there on the internet. However, it's uh, pretty difficult, if not impossible, to cheat a ET in a mile an hour. And those really tell most people all they need to know about exactly how much power your engine is producing. If you are interested in learning more about EFI tuning, as I mentioned, we've got a range of courses that cover those elements. In particular, our EFI Tuning Fundamentals course is a great way to get a solid understanding of what's actually going on behind the scenes with our modern range of ECUs, how they work and what we're actually trying to do when we're optimising the fueling as well as the ignition timing. As I've mentioned, you can find that particular course at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. We will put a link to that course in the description of this podcast and as a added bonus, as a listener to this podcast, you can use the coupon code PODCAST75. That is going to get you $75 off the purchase of your very first HPA course. All right, with our introduction out of the way, let's get into our interview now. All right, welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks heaps for, for joining us today. Now, you're a guest that uh, I've been wanting to get on this podcast for a fair while because uh, your exploits back in the day in your Talon Eclipse were one of the the driving motivators that got me involved in drag racing in a roundabout way that got my old business STM started, which then in a roundabout way is why we founded High Performance Academy. So You've actually, we've got a lot to thank you for, which uh, you're probably not aware of, but um, I'm sure your talent was also an inspiration to uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands of DSM slash Mitsubishi fans all around the world. We're going to get into that car in a bit of detail, but before we do that, maybe if we could just roll back the years a little bit and... Give us a, a bit of a rundown on on how it came to be that you got involved in uh, automotive racing, drag racing, and basically wrenching on cars. Sure, sure. Happy to be here. Um, I came up really not having any automotive background. Um, it's kind of whether it's in your brain or not, whether you can have like a mechanical aptitude, uh, whether it was taking, taking apart the hovercraft from a Star Wars character or, or a... Dirt bikes, start off dirt bikes, BMX bikes, everything was just mechanical, taking things apart, figuring things out. And that obviously just leads to, you know, leads to more things when you get the driving age and building muscle cars and building your own engines. Um, that's really how I got started. Just the, just the wanting to learn, wanting to understand how things worked. And that led to, I took like a vocational class in high school. I mean, that was kind of more just change of oil kind of thing, but. It still got me in the in the mood to want to do more and uh went to an actual tech school after that a couple of year you know tech school which got me in the door to a dealership and that's when you learn the ethics of um well anymore back then it was ethical um most dealerships where i was at i mean it was you know treat your customers right and uh give them a fair labor for what they're paying for and that's when the it was an Eagle Talon dealership, your Jeep Eagle dealership where the Talon came out. And uh, that was in 90, right around 90, late 90. And these things were like spaceships. I'm like, what the heck is this car? Like, it didn't look like anything else back then. You think of all the old K cars and everything and uh, the Dodge Shelbys, but the Talon came out and it was just, it was just amazing. 
I got to get my start learning how to work on those things under warranty. And obviously they had a lot of transmission issues back then. Naturally. So yeah, a lot of them. And so four years later, that's when I got my first, uh, that was my first big car was a Talon. I bought a 94 Talon and that's kind of started everything. Okay, so was that the the Talon that you developed into what was your world record holding drag car? It was not. That was, I still face this dilemma to this day. That was my pure street car that I didn't want to ruin for racing because you kind of cross that line like, okay, now it's not really a street car and you have the cage in it and everything else. So that was my street car. And then I bought one just to have as be a race car. Uh, that was the old Busher Racing Talon. And it already had a cage, so a lot of the work was done, and it, I didn't. It didn't hurt so bad to take some weight out of it here and there. I think that's that's something that is really easy to overlook for for a lot of our listeners who who are sort of thinking, you know, I don't have the money maybe for two cars, so I'm I'm just going to modify and race my street car, and on on face value that seems like a sensible approach, but the reality of living with and daily driving a, a very heavily modified drag car or any form of race car for that matter, uh, it really can take its toll, particularly in most instances, 90% of your time is daily driving the thing versus 5 to 10% of your time actually racing the thing. So I, I think that's that's an important takeaway there that, that is so easy to overlook is more often than not, it makes a lot more sense to to suck it up and not develop your street car to that level and actually save that for a dedicated race car. So sorry, I just uh, butted in there, but I, I think that that's something that uh, I, I see a lot of people making that mistake and going down that path and regretting it. That still holds true today. Um, the safety aspect of it, do you run a cage on the street, which isn't as safe as not running a cage on the street, but then you take it to the track, so which is safer and where do you cross that line? And the same thing applied to the to my uh, street GTR, you realistically can't drive a street GTR with a full cage on the street without having a helmet. You're going to probably do more damage and the risk is probably higher than being at the track. So it was kind of like that, that gray area, where do you draw the line? So it literally is the same situation that just happened when I retired the street car to street and bought the GTR for a race car only because I knew that I had to make a choice and you can't have both. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think You've just touched on another really important point that most people would not even consider. You know, the roll cage is actually not safe in a street car where you're only maybe wearing a, a diagonal seatbelt instead of a full harness and you don't have that roll cage. Uh, when you end up in a bad accident, which obviously no one wants to, to be in, but it can happen. And you know, you're banging around in that car, moving around a, a lot, and your head can easily contact the roll cage in most instances. You don't have uh, the protection of that helmet. So, so I just wanted to touch on that, that, that safety element there of, of a roll cage in a, a street car. Um, most people think that they're doing a good thing for safety, but, but actually it's, it's usually the, the complete opposite. All right, so let's, let's get into the development of your, your talent. So you, you said you you bought it as a, an already built or already partially developed uh, car from Busher. Uh, what what sort of times was it running when you purchased it? And can you maybe give us a, a quick rundown on, on the spec at that time? This goes back pretty far. Um, I believe it had not run a 10 yet. I think that's the condition I bought it in. That was the goal to get in the 10s. And I ran a 10.7 pretty quickly. 
Can you maybe also give us, I know, again, I'm really probably stretching your memory here, but to, to give us a bit of a, a, a kind of lay of the land at that time with the uh, the import four-wheel drive turbo era of cars back then when you had that towel on and started racing it, what what was the sort of fastest ETs a mile an hour that, that um, cars had run? I believe that was about it, really. There was all yep. mid, probably high, high tens, I think, was, uh, it's funny, I just switched toolboxes and I found my old time slip from, I think it was uh, DSM Times or something like that. The, uh, it had the list of, you know, you had to kind of keep yourself up in that top 10 or whatever. And, <laughs> but I had two of them in the top, two of them in the tens at the time. And that, that was, that was about it right, right then. I mean, we were dealing with HKS, the VPC, the, running way too hot of plugs just to try to get the thing to, 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 I guess, be on the edge of detonation to get some timing. I don't, I don't know <laughs> how they even worked back then, but yeah, it's kind of crazy to think of the things we went through. So, so back in that day, you're, you're talking there about essentially running piggyback controllers as opposed to standalone engine management. Right, right. Yeah. Then you didn't have direct control of even timing. So you had to kind of, go off O2 readings and not a wide band by any means, you know, so it was, that would really push it to remember those numbers. But I remember it was point whatever to point this. And then, <laughs> other than that, you're going to detonate this thing. We were running like five heat range plugs. Again, it was just the infant, you know, it's just not knowing any better. I, I think, uh, I think these days people growing up and, you know, getting involved in, in building and modifying cars do, do not realize how lucky they are with what we have access to relatively cheaply these days uh back back when i first started modifying my own cars you know, wideband air fuel ratio meters they, they just they weren't a thing uh if, if you wanted one you were you were buying from maybe one or two manufacturers and you were probably looking down the barrel of a four or five thousand dollar lab quality piece of equipment, which obviously just wasn't affordable or realistic for the average enthusiast. And even even a lot of the the workshops that were tuning at the time were were basing their airfield ratio on on narrowband, which I think is probably what you're referring to, uh, because that's obviously what the cars were equipped with at the time. And, and you know now we look around that there's probably. 20, 30, maybe 100 manufacturers of, of reasonably good quality wideband air fuel ratio controllers that could be had for, uh, I don't even, I haven't even looked recently, probably under 200 US dollars anyway. So, uh, you know, that coupled with the, the plethora of quality standalone engine management systems, plug and play and wiring, it is incredibly easy to to get performance out of cars these days so yeah you know, I, I, again i just don't think people maybe recognize the the barriers that that were in front of you when you're trying to get a car like that talon to, to run tens at, at the start now in terms of the the package in terms of the engine what what did you sort of need to do at that starting point when you you're running it into the tens is is this still relatively stock i mean the 4G63 it's a pretty stout engine uh for all intents and purposes and the Talon uh, essentially we don't we never got that in New Zealand it was a japanese model but uh, essentially for all intents and purposes the engine is the same as the Galant VR4 uh, six bolt 4G63. So, yeah, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, back then I believe the, the hot combo was the uh, HKS 272s, and yep. uh, everybody just ran them. And then we went 
crazy and got the 280 exhaust cam or something back then, you know, <laughs> that was pretty basic. A lot of stock intake stuff. And that was before sheet metal intakes really started taking shape, you know, different runner lengths and, and such, but uh, also trying to get the exhaust out of them. You know, we were on an OEM based turbos, which had so much back pressure that again, we weren't testing things like that before. And that's when the clipped wheel came out and he's, you know, basically just shaving the side of the turbine wheel off to get some more exhaust out of it. That made huge differences back then. That was before the actual real turbos got put on and learning about what different cams did, um, the green cams, things like that. That wasn't even heard of really back then. So at this time, uh, what's your level of involvement with with working on the car? Are you building the engines, modifying the turbos and doing your own tuning? Uh, do you have access to dynos or is this seat of the pants uh, and time slip based tuning? Definitely seat of the pants back then. We didn't have anything like that. As far as engines, they were stock crank kind of, I believe we put rods in them. We were running the uh, second gen pistons for a while. It was just a cast high compression piston that was available later. Uh, the JE pistons were hot back then. I don't remember what rods we were running. Now we're obviously starting to run aluminum rods. All right. So, and that, that got you into the tens and we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, the, the hurdles that were in front of you then. What what was it that kind of accelerated you away from the rest of the pack? Because back then, at least when you retired the car with a 770-191, and I think you, you mentioned it had gone as, as quick as uh, 195 on the quarter, you know, what what was different? What were you doing different to everyone else that, that gave you such a massive advantage? I think probably the most was just being so damn stubborn. I don't know how I, I don't know how I would, didn't quit so many times. Just the drive of every, every two weeks having to race, I raced the uh, NOPI, IDRC, a few NHRA events. Um, just every, every week, every other week wanting to go faster. You don't want to go and have the same thing every time. And what can we do? What can we try? It was always just that game of, okay, let's try this and then see what it does in the next race. Let's try this. And that just makes you progress. You know, we won a lot of races back then, but it was still more just trying to get the best ET every event. Like, well, what can we do? What's going to make a change? Tough way to learn back then, but it does make you learn versus just bolting parts on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I think a lot of um, import racers spend more time working on the car and, and, and modifying it than actually racing it. So it sounds like you were definitely getting getting some laps in as well, which you obviously need to do, as you mentioned, to, to learn and, and validate uh, a particular change. Now, one of the problems that, that we saw with our own Mitsubishi-based four-wheel drive drag platform is... Uh, transmission reliability. Um, we started as as most did with the stock five speed transmission, which which was good to a point. And I, I think it was about the uh, the point we we're running in the mid nines that uh, we're pretty consistently uh, destroying fourth gear, and, and that was, if I remember correctly, probably the, the the first main weakness inside that that OE transmission. Uh, what were you doing? And this, did this lead to the development of Shep Trans or is this already going on in the background? That's exactly what started it. Um, back in probably 96, 97, some of my friends started having talons. And because I was a tech at a dealer, I had full access to parts and parts diagrams and what running changes were being made. And wait, I'm warranting this car, but then this doesn't have this. And then, but this newer car has, you know, this cool double synchro set up. Why don't we do this and adapt this to this older one? And, but the later style had a weaker this and let's combine these parts and try to make this box that has the best of everything. And we would start doing that. And then 
hey, can you do this for me? Oh, sure, let you know, bring it over. So that led to another person telling another person. Then all of a sudden, within not too long, had you know people driving out of state for me to build their transmissions, and it was still just kind of fun because I really didn't have any, I didn't have a desire to leave the dealership. It was a nice constant job. There was a steady income. You know, I had insurance and everything, so everything was going good. I just kind of was using that as a side, kind of a side deal for a while. So it never meant to take off the way it did until uh, the dealership uh, was foreclosed on. Uh, we literally didn't have, have had zero, zero warning. Um, just went to go clock in one day and the gates were closed and you can't get your tools. You got to wait till this, you know, we're able to open up and then we were just left without a job. So your hand, your hand was pretty much forced at this stage. Right. So I tried, I, I went to another dealership and it just wasn't the same home that I had and tried another dealership and the same thing. I just can't, it was just not the same family type operation that I was used to. And so they were generous enough to let me use the shop after hours and I would rent the shop after hours to kind of do my side deal, which got busier and busier and busier. Then it just got to the point and they're like, well, you kind of need to make a decision. Do you want to do this or this? And I said, I have to leave. And that that was a turning point, leaving with two kids, um, two babies with no insurance, no city income. Like this is, you got, you got to sink or swim. So that's when it all started. That was about 2000 when it happened. Yeah. I want to dive into to ship trans and the development and and what that's turned into today. But before we get into that, we'll, we'll just finish up with with the talon. Uh, now you, you've sort of mentioned here you're basically mixing and matching you know the the developed parts from the OE trans and basically building the best of the best of of what was available and what was strongest from those parts. But but at a point you you get to to the situation where. Uh, yeah, an OE transmission that was designed for a 300 horsepower stock car is obviously not going to really work too well with 800, 900, 1,000 plus horsepower. So th- there's a limit. And, and I, I mean, I, I forget the timeframes as well. I got involved well after you were started racing. But I mean, I know when I first started drag racing the Evo 3, uh, we we didn't have the availability of uh, dog engagement gear sets from the likes of of PPG and PAR, which are available now. There's there's probably half a dozen others that are, that I've forgotten, but um, you know that that was a game changer when we went down the path of of, of fitting the PPG dog engagement first to fourth gear set, and, and that sort of really turned a corner for the reliability of our car. So you were in there earlier. Was that the same situation? No availability of these these gear sets, or you you had something else going on? Right, that's that was the same situation. And I reached out to PBG back then, and it was a bit confusing because first when I was doing the calculations for the ratios, it didn't seem right. But it's just the way they figured the sensitive ratio before or after. So initially, it was like, okay, it's not going to work. Let's not even bother trying to run this. And then figuring out the way they figured out their final drive ratio. I, it was after before the center diff. Then I was like, oh, okay, this is about right. So then I started working with PPG and that that definitely was a game changer for sure. I mean, that was an early, early revision of that gearbox, but uh, that that definitely changed things quite a bit. Now with that, it's it's a dog engagement gear set. I don't want to go too deep into that, but basically it allows for clutchless shifting provided you've got some torque interrupt to allow the, the engine torque to be reduced so that the gear can actually be changed. Uh, we... Yeah, you know, again, obviously, this really relies on the sophistication of the electronics, which was which was coming in around that time, but probably still pretty archaic by today's standards. Were you using any flat shift facility through the ECU, or are you actually clutching each gear? 
Yeah, so we were on the, well, I was on Autronic for a while and I'm trying to remember that I went through like three standalones until we got the AEM, which is actually a Honda box. It was made to work with the Talon ignition, but we were not using any, I was not using any shift interrupts at all. It was just a quicker version of being able to drive a, a normal clutch. Yeah, okay. And that's still to the end. That's what I always did. I never ever used a strain gauge or anything. And that's something that would have drastically probably changed now versus then. Yeah, and I think just from what I, I've seen with the cars that I've been involved with, and, and again, for those who, who aren't uh, racing cars at this level, we, the, the size of the turbo that you put on a, a small capacity engine to get the power to run 195 mile an hour, the, the problem with this is every gear shift, the turbo is falling drastically off boost, and then it takes... Uh, a very measurable amount of time, tenths of a second to get back on boost after that shift. So where you know that that's the the conventional shifting technique, even if you're really, really quick at, at uh, going through the gears, that's going to happen. Whereas uh, an, a shift interrupt, sorry, a torque interrupt with a, an ignition cut or something of that nature, the turbo's still going to fall off boost, but but nothing like it. So I mean, you know seven seven with with a manually shifted, uh, transmission, you know, that that could have easily been 750 or quicker with with just that one change. So I think people need to to recognise uh, how much of a deficit that was. Now the other aspect here is that you were working in the time before the ready availability of uh, billet blocks, which which now pretty much everyone at the 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 pointy end of the field is running not all admittedly, but but most, and and that's made things easier uh, certainly. What what did you find sort of the, the weak points or limitations in that 4G63 engine? Well, yeah, before even mentioning Bill and Blocks, we still were on a wet oiling system. Um, they were a stock oil pan trying to keep the oil back down where it needed to be before the end of the, even before you had to pull. If you look at some of my videos, I had little post-it notes and people make fun of me, but it literally, if you, if you didn't push that clutch in before, just the, the spinning down from, if you just didn't have that engine down quick in the G-force on the parachute and you're still spinning it at close to 11,000 RPM. One little mistake like that knocked the rod bearings out of it and you're in the pits pulling the oil pans, trying to smack bearings in it to get to the next round. So yeah, we didn't have, I mean, you would overfill the engine. It would just all end up in the head and not pump back down. It would just wouldn't get back to the pan. So if you'd push the pickup all the way to the back, so we'll work on acceleration, any little hesitation, it would just suck air and just knock the rod bearings out on diesel. Yeah, I think um, we, we had some interesting anecdotes from exactly the same situation before we went dry sump and we had a, a fairly well-developed baffled sump, which, which worked well off the line. And I mean, I think back in the day, my car was pulling a little over 2G uh, during the launch and, and then during the run the, the oil pressure was was actually pretty solid but um yeah we found exactly the same as you when you pull the chute the 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 deceleration of the car uh we were still 10 10 and a half thousand rpm and you'd see the oil pressure drop sometimes down as low as sort of 15 20 psi so yeah i, I feel that I, I i know that pain and um it's not sort of the area where you expect to see oil pressure problems but uh anytime the the thing's spinning at 10 to eleven thousand rpm you, you damn well want some oil pressure in there to keep everything lubricated yeah, post-it notes don't work either, by the way. <laughs> when you're trying to keep the thing straight after the traps, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't work. I've definitely failed on that many times. 
Yeah, I, I can uh, I can imagine that trying to read anything at uh, 190 mile an hour is probably not the, the first thing on your mind. Uh, the other issue with uh, these four-wheel drive drag cars is, is actually getting them off the line in the first place. And um, it's, it's a razor edge that we're kind of walking between having the car light up all four and, and basically go nowhere or alternatively bog and, and fall completely off boost. Um, now, th- there's a number of products on the market which sort of developed over the time I was drag racing uh, which which create a, a certain amount of clutch slip and uh, we actually talked to to Miles from English Racing in detail about that so I won't go too much more into it for those interested check that podcast out uh, but were you using any product like that or are you just doing it old school and you're just a, a guru at slipping the clutch with your, your left foot consistently every run? Yeah it was definitely old school. Uh, we did use a staging brake, um, pull it up there and crank the brake, pull the staging brake and just power brake up against that staging brake with the clutch and then just walk it out. That's not great for reaction times, obviously, but it kept the thing together. Um, I did try to go back later when I brought the car back out after we got it redone and I tried using Antelag kind of launch and it, it just wasn't comfortable for me. I think the car needed to have that preloaded kind of slip coming out of the hole and you can only do that with a carbon clutch, obviously. Sure. And what you're talking about there is actually uh, sort of almost partially engaging the clutch when when you're staged to uh, obviously you're building boost there but also to to reduce that shock loading when you actually leave the line right i don't even think we were building that much boost back then we were just pretty much up against the limiter just kind of using the load to build boost not necessarily on any type of ant lag though sure yeah okay now obviously this is a million dollar question but Given the advances in technology since you you ran that 770 uh, with modern turbochargers, billet blocks, the advances in EFI, you know, if you had your time again, what what do you think realistically you could do with that car? A six is possible. I mean, Devin has definitely proven that it's possible, uh, not just once or twice. I mean, he's always right there. So sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a brilliant guy. It's not not to say that I. Could be any quicker than him, but that's definitely the potential that the car has. I still have the car, but at this point, I, it's not reasonable for me to try to campaign a car like that and running a business and trying to have some type of life anymore. Um, it's just too much work, you know? Yeah, I, everything's a balancing act. And I mean, obviously, the transmission world has has moved on and uh, dual clutch transmissions really are, I'm guessing, uh, your bread and butter these days. So yeah, from a from a marketing perspective, it doesn't really make a lot of sense running a, an, an older car with a, a manual four-speed transmission. You have more recently moved on to a more modern platform with the R35 Nissan GTR. So could, could you tell us how you went about choosing that as, as your next project? It was just a natural progression. I mean, the DSM went to the Evo and what's the next all-wheel drive thing to come out? And that was it. I mean, the, it just made perfect sense. Obviously, the R35 is a pretty well-established platform these days. And I, I, I don't know exactly how many there are, but the, there's a fair number of them deep in the sixes and, you know, plenty of them in the sevens and, and eights. So so it's it's a well proven platform. Uh how how easy, I guess, is it 
uh, to get an R35 into the sixes given I think uh, you've run 682, 684 in your own car recently. Now, what was the develop- development path to, to go from uh, a stock showroom stock car to, to sixes? Yeah, I mean, I would never say it's easy, obviously, but obviously we were close with, with T1 Race Development and I had bought a chassis that was already started from PRL. Um, he just lost interest in it. So it was a perfect, perfect situation to get into a car that was kind of, because you, a lot of people get into cars and you get the car half, even three quarter of the way done and it just stops. And that happens a lot. So it was just a perfect scenario to get this car, have T1 finish it. Um, obviously we built the transport, but other than a few weird quirks, um, the car went sixes extremely quick. It was a blessing, but it wasn't because after that, what do you do? Um, that's kind of where I'm at with the car right now. It's like, okay, now what? You know, you, you run your first six and the next six is about 20% of your first. And now it's like, okay, just another six, another six, another six. So that's that's the crazy part is you kind of get numb to it quickly. Yeah, I no, no disrespect, obviously, for, for anyone who's, who's run a six. But, but as you say, I mean, where is that next milestone? And... um you know, those who, who maybe aren't too deep in the drag racing world would think, well, well, five's obviously the natural progression, but uh, the part that's really easy to overlook is there's kind of almost an exponential learning curve in terms of what's required to go from an eight to a seven, then a seven to a six, and then a six to a five. And, you know, sometimes with a given platform, that's just simply not realistic. Now, you did go through a development path with this car, though, because I remember bumping into you at uh, TX2K a few years back, and, and back then the car was was nowhere near uh, as quick as it, as it is today. We've also seen a, a, a lot of people jump on the R35 platform, and kind of this almost rolls back to our earlier conversation about how fast can you go in, in a street-driven car and where does that line exist. Uh, the R35 seems to be one of those platforms where roll cage and safety equipment notwithstanding, uh, you can genuinely have a 1500 wheel horsepower, 1800 wheel horsepower car, take to the track, drive it there and back with the aircon on and then drive it home through the, the McDonald's drive through For you, where, where's that line on, on where it no longer becomes a, a streetable car anymore? That's... Yeah, a lot of people get confused with my street car and the race car because they're both silver. Um, they are completely different cars, different chassis. I still have both. But the um, street car was and still is, in my opinion, like the perfect stopping point. Um, that full interior, full, full exhaust, no crazy dumps, no exhaust dumps, just the wastegate dumps, which don't really dump a lot when you're at high boost, you know? So. That car to me is still perfect. Uh, it it ran seven the last pass. I decided I was going to retire the car. It ran seven six zero at one eighty five, and it still drives so nice at that level. That to me is probably the absolute limit of being a perfect street car. Probably too much, but you know when you're running a Motec, you can. They're so seamless. You just turn the torque down, and you don't really feel that it's being turned down. You just have a less aggressive hit, but you can still drive it. It's a eleven hundred torque. You know not all the way cranked up and you still have a decent tractability so that that would be my limit i think the very fact that uh you're talking about something that's capable of of running seven sixes and and you're using the term streetable car in, in the same sentence is just insane and, and shows how far the technology in these modern cars has come and i do apologize 
that obviously I, I've fallen into that trap of thinking your two silver cars were the same in a further development. But um, yeah, I do recall, I think it was at TX2K that it was your street car uh, that I was referring to. So yeah, apologies uh, on that front. Uh, the other thing that goes hand in hand with that, which is is easy to overlook with uh, you know the internet, social media these days, everyone's uh, posting up huge power figures, dyno graphs, etc. And it can be really easy to to lose track of 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 what living with a 15, 1800, 2000 wheel horsepower car with a what is still a small capacity engine actually looks like. So. Yeah, could, could you talk maybe with that streetcar, you, you've said that's kind of what you think is the perfect limit, limit for a streetcar, what's the sort of maintenance schedule on, on something at that level look like? Is it is it livable or does it require a, a pretty constant diet of, of trips to T1 or, or wherever for, for maintenance? I would say normally if you have a car at that level, you're probably not using it as your daily. So the mileage tends to get cut drastically. I don't drive the car often. You know, I can take my dog to work or something like this. So it's not like I actually use that as a daily driver. So my maintenance is pretty limited. We ran the same motor for four or five seasons, uh, okay. same, same short block. So, but do it. That's what I would say is a limit. Do, do I suggest people that are getting into it get a car at that level? Probably not. Uh, I talk more people out of it than into it. Um, probably that 11, 12, maybe 13 horsepower range. That's probably really the limit you should consider if you're wanting to actually still like the car and drive it. I mean, that's going to make for an incredibly fast car. Uh, with the the transmission in that GTR platform has, has really been, as I, I've, I've seen it from the outside and, and those that I've talked to who are deep involved, uh, is kind of a blessing and at least initially was a bit of a curse as companies around the world, yourself included, kind of learned the the weaknesses, shortcomings and what actually needed to be done with that GR6 transmission. And for a start, we've used this term already, dual clutch transmission. I, I like to think that probably most people would have a, a broad understanding of what that means, but Without making any assumptions, could you give us a you know the 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 thirty second rundown on what dual clutch transmission actually means? I guess the most basic form would be it's two transmissions in one, and they're just sharing it's they're sharing their job and passing handing off the job to the other one, so the other one doesn't have to work as hard to make the next change, which is exactly the term of dual clutch. It has a clutch for each input shaft, so the passive input shaft is pre-selected in S gear, so one. It's commanded. The hydraulics just swap the clutch over to the next one. It gives the other one a break. It lets the other one shift. And that way it's not so dependent on how quick that shift is because it's already shifted in the next gear and you're just literally basically just swapping clutches. So uh, basically you've got, as I understand it, uh, you've split the gears. So if odd gears will be on one input shaft essentially and your even gears are on the other so as you mentioned you're in first gear you launch the car off the line second gear is already pre-engaged on the other input shaft and and then it's a simple case of disengaging the first gear clutch and engaging the clutch that that will will take second gear that that's correct pat exactly yeah and then that's already in third by the time second is engaged so it's already pre-selecting third so for the the driver and and you know going down the drag strip or acceleration times the the advantage there is is almost seamless shifting so none of the the sort of drop off and boost that you see with the, the bigger turbos that we talked about and much less interruption of torque compared to a conventional manual transmission correct and you're not so dependent on synchronizer or 
needing a dog engagement box. Yeah, so I mean, the dog engagement box is what we see conventionally in motorsport, which which gives a, a lot of the same advantages of a DCT transmission in terms of, of lightning quick shifts. Uh, however, a dog engagement gearbox would be an absolutely horrible thing for the street. So you're sort of getting that motorsport quality shift in in a, a livable uh, format with the DCT. Right, right, yeah. I okay. agree. All right, so with the the move into that R35 platform when it first sort of came out and, and became prominent, how, how quickly did you sort of jump on on the, the bandwagon there with development of that GR6 transmission? It would have been right around 2010, so pretty pretty quick. That was basic stuff, just trying to figure out, you know, why is this clip flying off this thing or why is, you know, they needed a lot of little maintenance things. And that was in the early Early days of LC1, which was, if you know, people have been around GTRs long enough, that's when the, the very, very early stages of the launch control happened. And it was a 4,500 RPM, absolute massive clutch drop. It, there was no feathering the clutch out. It just hit the clutches so hard. Uh, then that's, that's where they got the battery out about the first gear. Um, and a lot of people don't understand the first gear now is still the same first gear that they had back then. The box has not been upgraded gear-wise since day one. So it's just a, a change in the software for that launch control strategy. Right, yep. Okay. So if you take a, a stock R35 GTR and you want to go drag racing, and, and let's say, let's use your streetcar as an example. I use that, that term streetcar loosely, but uh, something that's going to run maybe mid to high sevens. What what do you need to change inside that transmission to to make it somewhat reliable? When you're in that torque range, you definitely have to have a gear set. Um, you won't last long running a factory gear set at that level at all. You might get a pass or two, but it's not going to be reliable. Anything over 800 torque really starting to push the limits of a factory gear set. So that needs to be changed. It definitely the drop years. Drop years are the final drive to the pinion gear. Not transmission exactly related, but the axles are one of the most important things to change. Breaking an axle is as hard on the transmission as launching it at 4,500, really. It's it's actually harder on the trans breaking an axle. And then the clutch, uh, you know, depending on the power level, torque level, that's where the clutch comes in. We can get into the sevens on a factory-based clutch. It's like our stage three 1K clutch. It's an 18 plate, but that's getting to the limit of that. So once you go to the Pro Max, that opens up the world to say a 10 plate to a 13 plate clutch and any more with the new technology of tunes and higher pressure maps and everything that's available you can get by on an 11 plate clutch on like a mid seven second car and it still makes a nice drivable car at that level okay so there's, there's a bunch of stuff that you've just talked about there i, I kind of want to di- dive into in a bit more detail so the the factory clutches uh and i'll talk about your relationship with dodson in a moment uh basically you've got dodson there who have developed replacement clutches. So is it, is it as simple, I mean, I am making this sound easier, I guess, than it, than it probably is, but is it as simple as removing that, that factory clutch and then just replacing it with a clutch that has, as you've mentioned, more plates in it for a, additional torque transfer or torque handling capability? Well, so the, like the OEM-based clutch where we can get 18, you can get 20 in them, but you start really pushing the limits. Um, that is a factory-based clutch. You're using everything except for like you're using the same OEM cage, the OEM clamp, the OEM pistons, that you can get by with. There's still machining and setup involved, but that's more of just a bill of basket. They're actually forged baskets and then replacing the discs and doing the machining to get the clearance you need. Okay. That's kind of our entry level 
stage two and a half three, which is super popular because it cuts the cost on the Pro Max when you get into the full billet assembly where you can get more plates because you gain a little bit extra clearance. Sure. And then now that's a full billet clutch center, full billet cage, um, aluminum pistons and everything inside. So it's a quite a step up to that. It, does this become a bit of a trade-off though? I mean, obviously the, the higher spec transmissions that you're you're building are, are really going into dedicated drag cars in, in most instances. So drivability becomes a, a little bit less of a concern. But but does this become a trade-off if you if you want a, a transmission that can reliably support uh, eleven hundred uh, pound foot of torque or or above? You're going to have some some downsides in terms of the drivability and the shifting at, at part throttle, or or can you really have the best of both worlds? I'm sure we'll touch on this later, but that really a lot of it has to do with how well the car's tuned, the, the, how the V map and how the TCM is communicating with the ECU as far as what torque it thinks it has and what torque it really needs to make the pressures that it commands. Because we're following a lot of things still, and that's. Probably the biggest issue right now with the GTR platform is we don't have a dedicated TCM. Yeah, so you're still, that's actually a good segue into the, the TCM or transmission control module mapping because the, this this is a, a pretty sophisticated vehicle where you've got an engine control unit which controls the engine tuning. So pretty straightforward and in a lot of ways not too dissimilar to, to what we'd use on, on any engine for, for tuning. But then you've got the transmission control module, which is in charge of the, the shift uh, strategy, shift RPMs, and also I'm going to assume here without having much involvement in it myself, uh, pressures inside of the transmission for the clutches, etc., and the, the the interaction which you've kind of like alluded to there between the two is is really key. So you know if we if we looked at a, a built transmission, what sort of how important is the mechanical spec of the transmission versus the uh, specific TCM tuning? Are, are both critical, or can one go without the other? Well, I guess I think I know what you're asking. So as far as the TCM is concerned. It only knows a defined amount of limits. So if it's X amount of torque, if you're at one-to-one -one torque, well, now you're making far above that, even in the mid-range or something. So if you don't lie to the TCM, it's going to shift horrible because it's used to a six-plate clutch. Well, six on each basket. It thinks it needs, say, 16 or 17 bar clutch pressure to hold this torque. But now we've got, let's just say, a 12-plate clutch over double the capacity of torque because it doesn't know what is behind it. It still thinks, okay, I'm at this torque at this RPM, I need to give it 17 bar clutch pressure. So that's a massive problem in the mid-range of these cars. Um, if you don't really fine tune the translation from the ECU to the TCM and lie to it, basically, it doesn't know any better. So the mechanics are doing what, it, what the mechanics are doing exactly what it's told. The TCM just doesn't understand that 17 bar clutch pressure on this clutch can hold 1500 foot-pounds of torque because in Nissan's engineer's mind, it's holding 500 foot-pounds of torque. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's there's a lot that goes into cheating or lying to the the TCM in order to actually get everything shifting nicely, and and holding the amount of torque that the engine can produce. Exactly. Yeah. It's not it's not an exact science either. That's the TCM also will get finicky in the amount of clutch slip before and after, so it, it can progressively ramp up um, your pressures. So it's there's a lot of background tables in the OEM strategy. In, in terms of that, is there, is there now a really well-developed understanding of, of what goes on in that Nissan TCM? Because you know, just like 
reflashing a, a, an engine management system, Nissan probably don't sort of hand out the documentation freely and easily on exactly what their strategies are with all of their functions inside the TCM. So a lot of this is kind of reverse engineered and, and it's been developed, but it, as you mentioned, the, the, there's a lot of tables here, there's a lot of sophistication in how Nissan have developed this and, and what it's capable of doing. What What is the level currently in the aftermarket of the understanding of that Nissan TCM? Or is there still a bit of a, a unknown elements to it? There's yeah, there are definitely hundreds of hundreds of tables of undefined parameters that you just don't know what to change. And architects have been great labeling them as much as they can, and they keep finding more. But you'll just start clicking, and there's tables it's like, okay, what if I change this number from a one to a ten? What does it do? What if I change it from a one to 255, what does it do? That's just mind-boggling to try to think of the time amount, the time allowed to try just even try to just test one thing at a time. How many broken parts are going to happen? How many, how many things are going to be destroyed? Just finding this one table that might be magic or might do anything. So I think that's to the point where really it's in this age, we just need a standalone TCM. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's easy to overlook that. You know, it, it's not a case of well, testing these, as you mentioned there, it, it's expensive. It's time consuming because realistically the the only way to, to test some of them would be maybe at the drag strip and then you know, you're dealing with an undefined parameter or table that you don't really know what it's going to do and if you get something wrong um, you could turn a very expensive transmission into to scrap metal I assume. Yeah I would agree. I mean one parameter might cause a massive clutch bind and, and break something or, or one might try to you know have it smacked in two years at once and you know, put the transmission in a huge bind and smash gears too. So it's it's amazing how far things have come with the OEM TCM because it's, I'm sure it's been done to a certain level, but I couldn't imagine running an OEM ECU at this level on the engine and expecting great results. So so what's, what is the limitation on further development around this transmission? Is it a mechanical aspect or is that pretty dialed now and it's really waiting for someone to come up with a full standalone TCM which gives the tuner or the transmission builder complete and defined control over every aspect of its operation? I believe the standalone TCM will make everyone's jobs easier once it's obviously sorted, which that's going to be a learning curve as well. But just to be able to control the amount of crossover, which crossover is a huge term in the DCT world because you do have two clutches that have to fight against each other, but how much do they fight against each other to get to the next side to where they can let the other one go? Um, that's probably the hugest thing we struggle with right now because you can really do a lot of damage if the crossover is too high and we don't have direct control of that. So that's something a standalone TCM could control without trying to manipulate a whole bunch of background tables to get the result you want. When you use that term crossover, uh, just so I'm clear on it, are you talking about we don't have one clutch completely disengage and then the other clutch engages, that they're sort of simultaneously engaging and disengaging at the same time? Is, is that what you're, you're referring to? Exactly, right, exactly. So so if you get that wrong, you are, you essentially are in a situation where you've got two gears engaged simultaneously, which which is never going to end well. Right, we face that a lot. For example, you can have two gears on whatever the TCM decides to do at a given time if some parameters, if they're reading too high a torque or if, if it's not happy about something or if your clutch capacity is too high, uh, you can have it be literally at 19 bar clutch pressure on both clutches for a period of time. Um, 
that's approaching, say, 1,800, 2,000 foot-pounds of torque holding on each clutch. It stalls the momentum of the car and obviously destroys parts. Uh, you can't have that happen. And that's that's the learning curve. So even if we even if we weren't to improve the mechanical gear train of the GR6, having that step would make them go much further, being able to control that, being able to hold it to like a six-bar crossover, even let some ignition control, let it cross over and let it slip through without limiting too much torque versus letting it bind up and actually stall the car, um, stall the momentum of the car because it's fighting two clutches at the same time. Something's going to give. And it's the weakest of the two years. If it's third and fourth, fourth is going to give. If it's second and third, second is going to give. Uh, it, ha it has to find a way out, the torque. If it's as important as you've obviously suggested it is, uh, are you aware, you're obviously at the cutting edge of, of the transmission development, are you aware of, of any uh, companies that are currently developing TCM, standalone TCM units for it? I have I know Motec has the ability to have a TCM and uh, it just needs to happen. Yeah, I don't. I, I know that it's been worked on and it's been around for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I just don't know if they thought the market was there yet, but it's it's there. I mean, there's these, these are not slowing down. We're busier now than ever. Yeah, and, and I mean, obviously people are making more and more power and those who are at the pointy end are obviously only going to want to go faster. So so that uh, makes that next step obviously become more important. Uh, stepping back a, a little bit, one, one of the things I'm just interested in with the launch strategy, getting the car to, to the 60 foot is, is really critical to uh, a good ET in mile an hour. And you know, a conventional two frame drag car with a a proper maybe a, a Liberty or a Lenco transmission would have a, a slider clutch or a, a slipper clutch, which is is purposely designed to to slip. It's got adjustable base pressure and it's got centrifugal weight, so uh, the the clutch tuner can can really control how the clutch slips off the line. So the idea there is to control the engine RPM. Uh, not let that get out of hand and keep the car essentially hooked up so it, it leaves well without breaking into wheel spin. All right, so is that something that can be applied to these dual clutch transmissions off the line or, or can you can you just not slip uh, these smaller clutch baskets or are you just going to create too much heat and destroy parts? I would say it can be done to a point uh, and that again is where we're relying on the factory TCM because we don't have direct control of that either. So you have to, I don't want to give anybody's, you know, trade secrets away, but you have to lie to the TCM to tell it things that aren't happening that are happening to get it to slide out because it, it doesn't have the knowledge. It doesn't have the ability to set a program slip. So you have to fudge so many things to get that to happen that it's not, I, I don't know that it's as accurate as it needs to be versus like a time-based okay. slip like you could have in a TCM if it was made by Motec or whoever, like you could say, okay, X amount basis time and then let it, grab but i don't think we have that control so that's that's the tough part we've seen a lot more slip than i thought we could get away with and the clutch would be fine but we'll, it's just going to take fine tuning like let's how many tenths can we get away with it at this level how many tenths can we get away at this level and just kind of walk it up like that but right now we just don't have that kind of fine tuning now you're You've got a, a pretty close working relationship uh, from what I, I've sort of seen with uh, Dodson's over here in New Zealand and um, they've, they've sort of, from again what I, what I see, uh, they've kind of cemented themselves as uh, the go-to supplier for, for a lot of the DCT upgrade parts, particularly uh, around clutches. How, how pivotal has their work been on, on what we're now seeing these cars do? Yeah, I think it's been massive. Uh, 
the good thing is that we work together closely and that's the key word work together because you just can't take parts blindly and put them together and rely on them to just keep on making them better. You have to give feedback. And especially as, as of late, they've been really good at feedback. Um, if I see things that need changed, they're very, very willing to try things or make me custom parts to try, to test, to see if we can make it better without, without flooding the market with the things that aren't tested. And that's, that's a big issue for companies that aren't at the level that can do a lot of in-house testing. You end up, you know, a lot of the customers end up being guinea pigs and we try not to do that, but it's hard at the same point. You have to progress as well. So we, you know, we test a lot in the race car. We test a lot in the street car, but I think it's always been, I mean, there's been step backs. It's not been, it's not been all easy. There's been some CO problems people knew about. Um, but again, you learn from it and you move forward and now they've been, now they're better than they ever have been. I mean, I think that is a valuable aspect that's that's easy to to miss is is being able to actually put these components to the test in your own vehicles as opposed to to turning your customers into guinea pigs. And I mean, when you can develop the parts, prove them on the strip or on the street, and then sell and known package to your customer, the customer obviously benefits from that, and uh, the end result's obviously going to be superior for for everyone. Now, we've focused a lot here during this discussion, obviously, on that R35 platform, but you know, the, there's there's a lot of other high-end cars that uh, that are making similar power now, and uh, the GTR versus the Lamborghini uh, Gallardo and now the Huracan market, the, there's a lot of sort of rivalry there. We're seeing uh, some really quick quick times from the twin-turbo uh, Lamborghini market. Uh, is it kind of the similar uh, philosophy for uh, developing and building pretty much any current generation DCT transmission? I assume they all have their own quirks and, and intricacies, but but is essentially the the um, the recipe the same? I would say yes, it is the same. But they, like you mentioned, they have their own quirks. Everything is completely unique. You can't really rely on your information from one to use on the other. Other than just understanding the basics of you know, basis of DCT technology and, and how the clutches work and how oiling works. I can't say you can rely on any of your past experience though. So it's just a, a new learning curve. Right. Yeah. Just every, their own, they're, they all have their own quirks that you have to learn. And that just takes monotonous over and over doing them and learning and getting them back and finding what works, what doesn't work. All right. If if you had to look into your your crystal ball at this point and and sort of see what's coming up for for the future of uh, ship trans in terms of maybe new transmission technology that you're you may be aware of that's on the fringe or maybe just uh, newer models that you you want to support. You know, what what do you see sort of happening there? Right right now, obviously the hot the hot market is the R eight Huracan. Um, there's being able to, now that it's been proven by several shops to run sevens on a stock motor um, and, and the cars are well they were coming down in price before this whole pandemic but <laughs> the cars were a natural progression from a gtr to an r8 or something like that and you can run sevens and you can have them you know the, the true beauty of a dct is the driver comfort you just drive this car you know just for example i have my r8 down in florida all through the keys just driving around it's just i cannot believe a 15 horsepower car can just drive so good and that's the beauty of it so trying to perfect that I think that car is going to be around for a while and it's going to be the, the next thing. I mean, it already has been the next thing, but just volume wise, I think it's going to get higher and higher right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're seeing more and more shops, including 
the likes of T1 recently uh, sort of branching out and, and developing support for their R8 and Huracan platform. And um, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, they, they, they were getting down to a price point where they were at least mildly affordable um it's a it's a lot of car for the money definitely and anything that can run sevens on a, on a stock engine uh, that that gets my seal of approval for sure uh, actually we'll just rewind a little bit as well because you know we've, we've talked a bit about ship trans but um yeah, you've been in business for for a fair while at this point can you give us a, a bit of a thirty thousand foot view of your operation now? Sort of, what what size is it? How many staff uh, have you got on board? And and maybe broadly, what kind of platforms do you do you uh, support with upgrades and modifications? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're still fairly small. I have 12, 12 employees. Um, I like it like that. Uh, I don't. I never wanted to get too big to where I lost focus on just every little aspect. I'm in there every day. Little known fact, I built every single clutch that leaves there. Um, that's that's my own passion. I, I love building clutches and it gets me out of the monotony of doing emails and phone calls all day. So if you don't get a hold of me, that's probably because I'm building a clutch. But I like to interact with the guys. I like uh, my son actually works for me now. And that was that's kind of a crazy thing growing up and having him growing up and having him work for me. Now he's, you know, hopefully taking over the reins here after a while. But uh, yeah, we, we keep it small. Could probably double in size, but I don't want to lose focus on what we like to do. I think that's always a um, a, a difficult balance when you're building a business as well, because naturally, no no matter how dedicated you are or how hard you try, what systems you put in place, as you grow, you tend to inevitably uh, lose control of some of the finer points. So you know, balancing that. Giving the best product to your customer and and being able to over oversee everything, as you say, you're, you're building the clutches yourself versus you know doubling in size and maybe losing some of that control. Uh, that that's kind of always a, a, a difficult call to make, I think. Um, so I, I get I get keeping it smaller and by the sounds of it, if your if your son uh, proves to be uh, capable, maybe uh, there'll be the opportunity to retire at some point. Maybe you can uh, focus on bringing the talon back and and running it down the street again. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I, uh, and again, like it's try, trying to manage growth is probably the hardest because it's hard not to grow too quick. It's hard not to take on every, every new platform, every new job, every, every buck you can make. Cause it's, uh, I think a lot of people just keep taking that greed and try to get everything and, and you have to take a step back and just do the, do what you do and do it best and try not to go quicker than you can handle. I think just from what I've seen through my own experience, through other shops that I see, you know, that temptation to grow too fast uh, more often than not ends up coming back and biting you because you do get into that situation where you know some of the processes or things get overlooked and the end result getting to the customer starts to suffer. And this is an industry, no matter what area of the industry you're in, that is so driven by the customer and you know, these days, everyone's interconnected via social media, by forums, by Facebook groups, and one bad experience from a customer, that spreads like wildfire. So yeah, I, I totally feel that, uh, John. It, it, it is such a difficult balance to get right. Right, I, I think we'll, we'll move towards wrapping this thing up, John, and we do have a, a few questions that we like to ask all of our guests each time. Uh, the first of those is, I mean, maybe we've kind of 
touched on this already, but to more formalize it, uh, what is next for you in the future for yourself, uh, maybe your drag racing and for Shep Trans? Yes, for myself, I think the goal right now is to try to try to get the systems in place so we can run more efficiently, which is really tough with the part situation. And that's something we didn't talk about. I mean, that's everybody's struggling with right now, trying to manage jobs with limited parts or maybe no parts at times. Um, but trying to get a process in place for, again, for my son to take over, trying so I can, so I can try to enjoy a little bit of life because I've worked really, really hard to get to where it's at right now. Um, and racing, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I probably won't be racing much longer. Um, I, I just, I raced a lot in my early years and I don't enjoy it as much as I used to, to be honest. And it's just the stress because it's probably just because you're running a shop and then also you have, it's more of a job now to stop and get the car ready and stop and take it to the track and get this. It's, it's just not my passion as much as it used to be. Yeah. And I think it's, it's easy to, to maybe overlook the amount of work that goes on in the background, uh, preparing the car for a, a meeting, getting it to the meeting. Um, you guys often travel fairly long distances to compete. And then post-meeting, you know, pulling the car apart, fixing something that's broken potentially. And, and that also has a knock-on effect of you've got uh, your staff maybe tied up working on your own car versus actually doing the business that, that makes you money. So I think, you know, it de- definitely has has does take a toll. Uh, and, I mean, I've found myself, my, my passions have changed over, over my career. Uh, I used to be, you know, absolutely in love with drag racing and my passion's now changed I, I really like uh, road racing uh, circuit racing and um, interestingly I, I always uh, while I was deep in it uh, you know it didn't really sort of play too much on my mind but when you look at drag racing it, it is a crazy sport because you spend more and more on your car uh, in order to spend less and less time in the seat so uh, circuit racing is quite different where you're actually out on the track for you know, sometimes an hour at a time and you feel like you're getting quite good value for your money. No, I can see that. Um, for example, just our last race down in Florida we went to and it was insanely cold down there and we traveled. So 40 hour round trip and uh, we just had a freak. The battery went low trying to start it because I'm methanol and it's 41 degrees out. Um, we just had a freak the TCM processor fault that popped up just from low battery voltage and first round wouldn't go in burnout mode, wouldn't eliminated first round is like that was a that was a long 40 hour drive for about seven seconds of power <laughs> on one pass so maybe i should try something like that um i just you know i, I raced so much in early days uh remember the days back when i still had a 40 hour week job 40 or 50 hour week job and traveling to the races every weekend racing all weekend falling asleep almost all the way home trying to just make it back to get in time to go back to work to work all day, to build transmissions at night, just to get by the next week to get the car. And it just, it was, you know, many years that I sacrificed and, you know, my kids sacrificed, my family sacrificed. And so it's tough. It's tough to keep going at that level. I kind of like, okay, I spent my time. I need to, I need to enjoy something else for once, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the, uh, the grind that so many people don't see. They, they see the overnight success that, that just took, 10 years to become an overnight success so yeah can't can't 
nothing happens without uh, a lot of a lot of hard work in the background. But yeah, at, at some point you really need to. Uh, you often change focus as well, which is which is p- completely natural. Now, now, given your career so far and everything you've done and everything you've learned, if you were to go back in time and maybe give any advice to a, a younger version of yourself uh, to maybe avoid some of the pitfalls, uh, maybe fast track your career, uh, what would that advice be? I think really um, just being honest with people because it's too easy to overpromise and underdeliver just to get the money. Sometimes I'm just really kind of sometimes too honest with people and they, they might, might take it the wrong way, but it's, I'm pretty matter of fact, I'm pretty realistic and uh, just try to stay true to that and not try to grab every, every opportunity that you might make a dollar on because it might come back to hurt you. Yeah, I think that's that's solid advice. Uh, and again, it comes back to what I was saying before. This is a, an industry that's so driven by by customers, and uh, you you do have to keep your customers happy and uh, and provide yeah a solid solid result for them. Otherwise, you're not going to be in business very long. And last question for today, John. If people want to follow you, check out what you're doing. Maybe they're interested in uh, an upgraded transmission. How do they get hold of you? Where should they go? Yeah, as far as marketing, I am the worst person <laughs> in marketing. I do not even. I don't even think I have an Instagram. If I do, I don't know what the name of it is. <laughs> um, our, our Facebook page. I just kind of use my personal page. Um, but ShepTrans.com. I'm still old school enough that I rely on email. I, I love email. It's just a quick way for me to communicate. So um, yeah, email is our best best way of communication. It's sales at sheptrans.com. And I personally do all the emails. Um, to go back on your previous question, that's another thing. Uh, I, I do not leave things hanging. And that's probably something I've been very proud of and stuck early on. If you email me, and a lot of my customers know that if you email me, I either instantly get back or at the most usually within an hour. If it carries on overnight, it's because there was a reason why. And that's that's something I think is very important. Yeah, that, that's uh, incredibly uncommon in almost every industry. The amount of frustration I have with uh, emails that never get replied to, but um, it's uh, it's kind of a fact of life, unfortunately. All right, John, look, really appreciate your time today. It's been uh, been really interesting, sort of getting a bit of a, a ride down uh, the the history of uh, your, your Talon, obviously, uh, as I mentioned, very influential card to myself and a lot of other people, and also getting some insight into uh, the more modern endeavours that you've got involved with. Uh, look, again, appreciate your time, and we wish you all the best for the future. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me.